Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven, single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Thomas Lee, the co-founder and CEO of financial data company Delupa. Delupa is a private company that was founded by a group of former buy-side investment analysts who saw the opportunity to use technology to upgrade the research process at just about any type of investment firm, but with a specific focus on saving analysts and portfolio managers' time. Just a few years into its journey, the company already has over 200 employees and has multiple offices around the world. In this wide-ranging interview, Thomas and I discussed where the original idea for Delupa came from, how he views the legacy data providers such as Capital IQ and Bloomberg, what Delupa is doing to make the product a must-have versus a nice-to-have, what AI means within the context of Delupa, and the importance of building a company that naturally generates a lot of cash. As a disclaimer, Delupa is a sponsor of the Compounders podcast. Also, I don't own any shares of Delupa. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Delupa CEO, Thomas Lee. So this is the first time I've interviewed the CEO of a non-public company. So I'm going to try to channel my inner Guy Raz from how I built this podcast. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the founding of this company was a pretty pivotal moment. But also, founding stories are super interesting to me. I would love to hear about where the initial idea for Delupa came from and how you came to decide to actually try to make the concept a reality. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ben. Uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, so I came up with the idea of Delupa really when I was an analyst um, in the Longshore Biotech community. And the problem that you know I was facing, a lot of my friends were facing, uh, was actually relatively straightforward. Uh, if you wanted to get very, very accurate and detailed historical data for public companies, uh, it was surprisingly difficult to do, right? You would think that given the level of sophistication of investment research today and given the amount of money that has been deployed by you know professional fund managers, you would have assumed that something as simple as getting data out of public financials has been a problem that's been solved for a long time. Uh, but the reality is, if you look across some of the best, most famous hedge funds and private equity funds, a lot of this work is done manually, 
right? You're just sitting there and you are, you know, industry work speak is you're just grinding through it, right? You're just collecting the data by hand, day in and day out. And a lot of times it's slow and you tend to make mistakes. So the whole idea behind Alupa was just solving this singular problem. How do we create the single most high quality database of historical financials uh, for public companies? And the beauty of high quality data is that it's measurable and you can actually say, hey, I have done it. You can definitively prove if you have achieved what you've set out to achieve. And I really like problems like that, where you can prove to yourself that you've actually achieved it. And then, so that's a really, as someone who spent a lot of my life taking data from presentations and taking data from 8Ks and 10Ks and physically putting it on a spreadsheet, I empathize with that. Okay, so that's an idea. How do you get from that to this is a business that I want to, you know, whatever, spend my life building. How, how did that process go? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think the thing about the financial industry and, you know, really, I don't know a lot of industries, um, but I was fortunate enough to know the investment research industry. And one of the things I liked about it is if you can provably solve a very painful problem that nobody else is solving, you can charge real money for it, right? So, you know, it's not an industry where you necessarily need to give out a lot of free accounts and convert those free accounts, right? It's it's an industry that, you know, a lot of the Silicon Valley founders will look at and be like, this is really old school, the way you guys do things. But the benefit of, you know, an industry like that is, you know, it has been proven to buy subscription software. Right? Like Bloomberg was one of the very first subscription software companies there is. Um, it has been proven that for for the ability to solve some very painful problems and painful automation issues, um, they're willing to pay for it, right? Some of the most expensive subscription software um, firms live within this industry. And basically the idea was, can you prove that you have product market fit such that you are not just selling a product that is a nice to have, but a need to have? And if you can prove that, then you have the first inklings of a business. And one of the key questions that co constantly come up in this industry is, are you able to prove that you can build a product that sells to the entire industry? Um, because if you can, then you can build a really substantial business, right? If you look across the world of public data companies, it is littered with, you know, the SMPs, the Moody's, you know, FIQ is owned by SMP, the faxes of the world, and these are not small companies. So if you can solve big painful problems and um, deliver the solution to the industry, uh, you can build a substantial size business here. So let's move from the idea to the business model to the present. To the extent that you're willing to share, I'd just love to get a shot, snapshot of where the business is today with and on any metrics that that you you know you're comfortable giving out to people. Sure. And we're very sensitive around um, who our customers are because our customers are very sensitive about that. So uh, in general, we don't reveal who our customers are. But what I can't say is, you know, if you were to browse the Wall Street Journal and you came across names of very large hedge funds and private equity funds, there is a very, very high probability that a lot of them are our customers today. Um, for the most part, what the people that we service at Delupa have a tendency to skew towards higher AUM sizes. 
um, because what we are building at Deluba is really a very high precision, high accuracy data set. Um, and that that strategic decision for us to build something as high quality as what we are what we are creating um, lands itself better in the hands of some of these larger AUM funds uh, with more well-established processes where, you know, 5% better data quality actually makes a world of difference for their investment process. And I've used the product, so I'm familiar with it. But for someone who hasn't used the product, what, um you know, and, but who's familiar with the industry, which which many of our listeners are, what do you what are you replacing? What are you supplementing? Where does it come into the workflow? Maybe just describe for someone who has never had access to it or never sp- spent any time with it, where, you know, how you're actually solving those pain points. Yeah. So Delupa is really a product that has two sides to it. Um, it's one product with two with two um, capabilities. The first side to it is an Excel spreadsheet, right? Uh, when you download our Excel spreadsheet, what you are getting is you're getting a perfectly scrubbed set of data. Uh, we are going to give you every KPI, every operating data, every financial data for thousands of public companies. And what is unique about our data is this technology we developed called verifiable data scrubbing. So for every single number that we are presenting to our user, it directly links back to the location in the source. So for instance, if you were to click on a number that tells you, hey, this company's you know, SGNA cost was up 12%, but 1% of the 12% is driven by, you know, say, uh, inflation, right? Um, we are going to source you to that 1% location where it's driven by inflation. So extremely, extremely precise. We call it perfect precision um, sourcing. So that's what verifiable data scrubbing is. And the value it provides to our customers is in one Excel spreadsheet, you are going to see perfectly every single KPI and operating data that has been presented. So historically, what you have done is you have gone through the 8Ks and the 10Qs and manually grabbed all of these data points. And today you don't have to. So that's the first side. The second side is much easier uh, to understand. Basically, we deliver to you a button in an Excel plugin, a singular button. And all you have to do is you press the button and your model updates in, um, in a very short amount of time from the company dropping their press release or their 10Q. Um, you don't have to have your financial models in any particular format. Whatever format you have been using is perfectly fine with us. Um, all you do is you press the button. Um, our AI does all the work in the back end, and we will then update your model for you. Uh, literally at the click of the button. So what we see a lot of our customers across, you know, hedge funds, private equity funds do is they build extremely sophisticated models in the middle of earnings season. You have all these different companies dropping earnings. Um, There's a thousand things happening. Um, You feel like, you know, everything around you is on fire. Uh, What Delupa is able to do for you is we can update all of your models for you by just click you clicking a button. So that's the second piece of it. Yeah, that, that description that everything's on fire during earnings season resonates with me. Yeah. Uh, and so, okay, so I've used the product, but I, obviously anyone who's in the financial industry, you know, investment management industry has had some contact at very minimum to on one end of the spectrum to like your entire process being dictated and governed by the data provider you use. For example, this firm, 
Capital IQ, we've used it since the beginning. All of our models are tied to Cap IQ. And so most investors are, are really familiar with Capital IQ and facts that in Bloomberg. So do you see this product as a complement to those products? Or is there some longer term goal where there are some situations in which it could be viewed as a replacement for those products. How, you know, as you're as you're targeting a big TAM and you're thinking about the competitive set and frenemies and co-opetition, how do you how do you frame those legacy data providers? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. And for the most part, um, what I will say is we have never once come across a single deal that we're selling into where the customer is saying, "Oh, we're going to turn off a Cap IQ or Facts or Bloomberg, any one of." Um, the larger behemoths. And the reason is very simple. Um, our customers, when they are subscribing to a Cap IQ or Bloomberg, they're subscribing for a set of values and capabilities that those platforms provide. The value that Delupa provides is a level of detail and precision that has never been seen before. It's a level of updating speed that historically has never been possible. So we're not, our value isn't a diff isn't a better value than any of the legacy providers. It is a different value. So it's unlikely that someone says, oh, I'm going to use the Lupa to replace a Cap IQ or a FactSet, because the reality is they were they didn't purchase Cap IQ or FactSet for what they're purchasing the Lupa for anyway. Historically, or what we see even today is customers are using a Cap IQ, a Bloomberg, or a FactSet for some data um, that they provide, but when you need to get it to the finishing line and you need to get all the other data a company provides or you need to spread extremely detailed comps, you're doing that by hand, right? So what we are replacing is that by hand motion. Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MD&As, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. And your salesperson's walking into a new client who has never seen the product before. Technology is good. It's very slick. It works well. And someone says, all right, that's interesting, but what do I do with it? Your point is the value proposition is about time and the ability to save people time. So if it's either speed to decision-making or just I save you times to free you up to do other important things. Is that is that a big component of that sales process, would you say? Yeah, I would say 95% of our, of our sales process comes down to speed to decision making, because Delupa isn't about just saving time. It's about saving time when time is absolutely the most critical thing that you have. And that's during earnings season, right? So 
An hour of time during earnings season between 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. when companies report is worth a ton more than, you know, an hour from 11 a.m. to noon on a random, you know, December morning, right? The reason is you are trying to figure out how the world has changed based on all the new information the public company to drop it. Not just the companies that you care about. Sure, there might be a company in your portfolio that's releasing earnings that you absolutely care about. There's 50 more that's reporting and is giving you live information about how the world has changed, how the industries you care about has changed, how supply chains have changed, and you don't have the ability to update those information. And therefore, your decision making isn't perfect, right? Your decision making is never perfect. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to get as much information as possible within that hour before the earnings call starts as you are trading in the aftermarket. You're trying to get all of the information in and that's where the loop steps in, right? Instead of doing all of that by hand, you click a button. And my guess is the biggest funds have resources that allow them to, you know, whatever, complement the, the existing data providers with your service. But there's certain, you know, as you as you kind of expand the TAM and you look at other investment firms who may not quite be in the, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in AUM, my guess is you hear sometimes we already pay so much and we, you know, we feel that you already pay so much to large data providers. You know, we simply don't have the budget to add new services. So, I mean, to me, that's a, you you need to, to, to be able to convince that group that it's worth the extra money. You have to move from a, a simply nice to have to a must have, which you talked about. So yeah. is this, is the time sensitivity aspect, is that the must have, or is there another layer that you hope to, to kind of uh, add to the service and to the capabilities that really cements that, no, no, this is not a nice to have, this is a must have. Yeah, so that's a great question because the way I think about must-haves versus nice-to-have is where do you sit in the stack um, of software to the end user? And generally speaking, must-haves are infrastructure and nice-to-haves are use cases, right? So the way we think about building Delupa is that we will provide an infrastructure layer to hedge funds and private equity funds and investment banks at a level that that ticks all the boxes of what you want from an infrastructural player. You want data, you want to be in a process where the data is precise, where you open a spreadsheet, you know you have all the data, where you know that it, this is the fastest way to update your model, bar none, right? You cannot update your model yourself as fast as we can update it for you or when we're updating another thousand, right? So what we care about at Delupa isn't about building use cases on top of our data. It's about taking the pillars of excellence that we have identified and driving it deeper. It's about being faster, being more precise, covering more companies, such that people look at us and say, these guys are just infrastructure. They are very, very good infrastructure, and therefore we need them. Because with good infrastructure, it allows me to figure out use cases, to think about investment ideas. And, and within that, we, we talk a lot about moats on this podcast and thinking about barriers to entry and switching costs. I'm interested of how data accuracy and you know perf having perfect data. I mean, do you see that as being a barrier to entry because I'm just uh, you know someone who's not in the technology space like data seems kind of ubiquitous how does 
how does how can having that data source be a, uh, a mode and a barrier to entry in, in a certain way? Yeah, so that's, that's, that's an interesting way to think about the problem of data. And this is always going to be true for data. Um, you can gather moats in one of two ways. The first way you can gather a moat is you have access to a data set so proprietary that you are the only player that can get access to the data set. That obviously is not the case for Delupa. If you wanted to recreate Delupa's data set, you are more than welcome to do so because all of our data comes from public companies. It's uh, They make it very easy for you to get the documents. Obtaining the data is a little bit more difficult, but the documents are easy, free, and available for access. Our moat comes in two aspects. The first aspect is we dedicate our entire livelihood to the extraction of data at a level of quality that has never been seen before, right? We do it in a way that marries the best of the best software tools and techniques today with human intelligence, such that we can get to a level of precision and speed that you cannot emulate using any other traditional methods. But is it possible to recreate that? Absolutely, right? Given enough time, someone can recreate that which means that is an advantage, but not a true economic moat. The true economic moat in this business model comes down to the relationships and the partnerships with the firms that we work with. Because at the end of the day, when you are an infrastructural player, the reason people keep using you is not because they have used you, but because you provide them with a level of service that is so seamless that they never have to think about it, right? We think about it as like water or electricity. Like, if you told me I could change my supply of water to someone else that provides similar quality level water, I would never do that because the water I have is fine. It works. It's consistent and it's clean. And that's what I want from my data provider. And to what degree are you giving people a service that they didn't even know they needed? And because I think that's where really su successful software products come is, is like, well, I never even knew this was possible. I didn't know I needed this. I mean, I think we all have, you know, anyone who's using the legacy products, you know, we get very trained to use their their platform and you almost never think outside of it. Did you find yourself having to convince people that this is a a something they need or do they see it and they say, maybe we couldn't have articulated it, but I see it very quickly that we need it. Yeah, I think it's the latter. So um, the way we have designed the product to be delivered is in a medium that everybody understands, which is Excel. And what is unique about the Delupa product in Excel is A, because we capture everything, let's say you are an analyst for you know, any public company, Costco, Walmart, Amazon. You're used to seeing a model for one of these public companies. And when you open up what we deliver to you in Excel, you're shocked at how much data they these guys are, are disclosing that you didn't actually realize, right? Most people do a good job at extracting the segmental data, the gap information, the non-gap information, all of that stuff. But a lot of folks don't do a good job at extracting the one-off comments, the footnote in the presentation, the analyst day four and a half years ago where they had this weird bar chart that had interesting information in there, right? That's It's just very human that in in a, sh a short amount of time, you cannot simply scrub enough documents to have all these one-time disclosures in there, a one-time guidance in there. And at Delupa, we have all of those. So the first micro moment is when people see that in front of them and they go, wow, that's a lot of these tiny disclosures that 
I've always knew that they probably exist, but I have no idea where to go find them, or I, d- I didn't even know if they existed to be found. The second mic drop moment is the verifiable data sourcing uh, capability that we've developed, which is we guarantee that for every single number that we present to you, we have a 100% accuracy rate of sourcing you to exactly where the number was from. So we guarantee that of the over 100 million data points that we have extracted, we have a 100%, not 99.99%, but a full 100% accuracy of delivering you back to the source of where the data was from. Right. So that's very impressive because one of the issues that, you know, I have when I was an analyst is you, you always look at a model and you go, I wonder if this number is right. This number has been in there for a while. Maybe I didn't build the model. I inherited from a different analyst. I wonder if this is right. And there are a lot of these times where you go, where did I get this number from? What does this number represent? Like, what is this in the first place? And that's what verifiable data uh, scrubbing really solves. It solves all of those, I wonder, where do you get this number from, like in an instant. Um, so that's the second moment when people go, yeah, this this product is is differentiated and it's pretty cool. And the last one is really like the one-click update, right, which we talked about. You click a button, um, your problem during earnings is essentially solved. It's pretty nice. I'll add one more value proposition is that you know, sometimes you don't know where the data to get the data. Sometimes you don't know where it exists. Sometimes you just get tired of hard coding stuff <laughs> and because it's just a very manual process. And there's a there's an opportunity cost of your time as an analyst. Like, do I need this extra piece of data that I now need to go back eight quarters and fill or would we be OK without it? Right. And so that's, you know, that's a real, I think, real time decision that an analysts have to make that, um that you, you know, like there's just some fatigue, especially during earnings season that you don't, that, that are, and and then of course you, you you put, you hardcore a number. And then as you said, like you look back and three years ago, you put this number and you're like, where did this come from? And you're never going to find it. Right. And so if you care about fidelity of data, the manual process is really, really inefficient. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's absolutely right. Um, people, for the most part, if a lot of times what we see a lot of, a lot of, people ask us is say, hey, you know, there is this one company where I don't know if I want to dedicate, you know, time to actually investigate deeply. I wish I just had, you know, all the spread in front of me, I can do the very quick calculation, dig into a few quarters of information, and then decide if I want to dive into it. That happens, that happens a lot. Um, And we do deliver into that value. But interestingly, that's, that's one of those things where I would say, it's a very nice to have capability, but it doesn't solve a big enough pain point in my perspective. That's not an infrastructural piece of the value. It's just, it's a, it's more of a symptomatic piece. It just, ha- it's happens to exist because of what we do from an infrastructural perspective. Um, but yeah, you're right. People, people do like it. I mean, maybe I can add a point to your selling process is that at least I know within my process, you know, just, just going to, to put, putting in a ticker and cap IQ you're missing a lot of K- KPIs and how things have trended. So if you're looking at software company, you don't see ARR, you don't see, you don't see retention rates. And so there's really, you only get a, you know, you only get a small snapshot of how the business is really doing. So what to your point is if you're going to spend, if you, if you care enough, if, if you're, if you're just doing a first look at a company and you want to know, should I spend five more hours on this business, having the, that data in front of you in a spreadsheet that you didn't have to collect 
speeds up that process to, yes, I, I want to spend more time on this or not, because you're actually seeing how the business is performing, not just the income statement balance sheet and cash flow. So I, I, I know you, you, you know, you said that's a nice to have for, I think there's, I think it dovetails a lot of the time saving elements that you discussed as well. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, so let's see, you, you guys talk a lot about your technology and, you know, if you go to your website to talk, you talk about artificial intelligence and, you know, obviously with open AI and chat GPT, like those, those words get thrown around all the time. Maybe for someone, you know, for some of our listeners and including myself, who's not like super technology oriented, what does AI mean to you? And how is, you know, how is, how are large language models and stuff like that in, integrated and incorporated into the Deluba platform? Yeah. So, you know, we've been using AI for, for a long time now. Um, and we've spent obviously a lot of time thinking about the relevance of AI for our business. Um, for the most part, or for the entire part, I will say we do not expose AI tools to our customers um, because it's not within um, our philosophy. Our philosophy is we are the best providers of infrastructure. When we give you something, something is right. Something's consistent, it's right, it's predictable. It's something that you don't have to think about. And what AI is very good at is AI is very good at leveraging the infrastructure. It's very good at using data, training itself, and providing you with analytics, with different um, with different ways of cutting the data, basically different use cases. And that is not what we do. However, there is a huge use case of AI for us, and that is in the data extraction process, right? In order for us to provide clean data to our customers, we need to clean it first. And that's where AI becomes very, very powerful. So what we have developed in the back end is what I believe to be one of the best data extraction systems ever created, where we have a constant with constant development between AI extracted data and human verifying the AI extraction and the nonstop back and forth um, to clean and extract data at a very, very large scale at a level of accuracy that has not been seen before. Um, we serve enterprises, we serve financial institutions that operate at the cutting edge of investment tools and techniques. And it is our mission to not serve what we call beta projects, right? When we serve data, the data works. And because of that enterprise grade requirement, we're constantly testing the state of the best AI tools today. You know, we have ChatGPT, Google has Bart. We're constantly testing them. But the reality is, I think there is a huge consumer use case, um, especially as a consumer-based investor or you know, as a singular investor. Uh, for those tools. But when you are a very large institutional investor, um, those tools are not giving you the level of precision and accuracy that you require. The single largest challenge I think today uh, comes in what we call the hallucination problem, where, mm. um, and we see this all the time internally when we use AI, which is when you train a model to give you a response, the model has a tendency to give you a response even if the response is not accurate. So if you ask, sim simple test, right? If you ask an AI system, what is gross margins for Amazon? It will give you a response. Amazon doesn't actually disclose gross margins on a segmental basis, but it will try to give you a response because it thinks you want a response, right? Um, and I can go on and on about examples like that. And if you were to ask a human analyst, what is gross margins for let's say AWS? 
and your analyst tells you that, you are probably going to get pretty angry because you can be like, you should tell me it's not disclosed, right? There is an element of being a human analyst where you say, I don't know because I just can't find out. It, it doesn't exist. And I think that's something that a lot of people um, don't, will, a lot of people in the enterprise space will fully appreciate, which is it's not ready for prime time in the enterprise use case as it pertained to infrastructure. However, the, I see that there are a lot of use cases where you could theoretically build a chatbot on top of our data, right? If you're one of our customers, you can build a chatbot on top of our data and you can deliver to your human analysts some incredible insights based on what is going on because we have the population of all publicly disclosed you know, KPIs and operating data and a chatbot will help you discover the information on top of that. But from an ethos and philosophical perspective, that's not for us to build. We are the providers of, you know, the utility. Our customers are the ones building the tools on top of that. Got it. And scalability is a really important topic in any software-oriented business. You have an element of technology and human interaction and I'm wondering if that, you know, need for people and bodies and that human interaction limits the scalability of your business. How would you think about that in terms of obviously, you know, margins and returns and then to being able to address the total market that you have in front of you if you need to backfill with people as you as you grow? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, great question. So because I was trained in the hedge fund world, um, the way I always looked at businesses has primarily been driven by a singular metric, which is incremental margins. Um, and every time I look at a business, including my own, um, the question I ask myself is, what is the incremental free cash flow margin of every incremental dollar? So in a weird way, I don't really care how much tech or how much humans there are, so long as the incremental margins are high, right? There are businesses, let me give you a good example. If you look at the perfume business, right? Incremental gross margins for perfumes are higher than almost any technology-driven business there is. There is almost no, like what we know today as software attack and perfume development. There's chemical attack, but there's not much software attack. And yet their gross margins are significantly higher than honestly any software company we have come across. So I've always thought about that as from a business model perspective, how do you maximize incremental gross margins um, as, and, and operating margins as opposed to humans versus tech? But that being said, um, there is obviously an element of human tech and data uh, as a mix that matter. The beauty of data businesses, for the most part, is once you have built the database, you can sell it multiple times, just like software companies, right? It's very similar in, in terms of that business model. Um, software companies require a team of engineers to maintain the, the business, whereas data businesses require basically your code, your algorithm to get smarter, to extract the data and humans to validate the data. However, there is one difference. Data businesses get a lot, the cost to, the cost to maintain a database stays linear, even though your database is growing, because all I have to do is update the same amount of companies. Assuming I don't grow coverage, the amount of updating work that needs to be done is the same every single quarter, despite the database growing. So I could have as many customers as I want on that same database. If I don't grow coverage, my cost will not expand, which is, which translates into basically a very, very high operating leverage in the business. Um, 
in order to drive into one of the three pillars, um, philosophical pillars that we have, right? Accuracy, speed, and completeness, that's where you will have to spend on R&D. If you say, I would like to drive updating speed from you know 45 minutes to five minutes, that's where you have to invest in R&D. That's where you have to run experiments with AI to see how far you can get. If you want to imp improve your, your model coverage, right? Let's say you want to cover a totally new language then that's where you have to spend R&D dollars in figuring out translation algorithms for the particular language in financials. Got it, got it. And we've heard until recently, I think that there was a just a really hard time for a lot of companies to attract enough engineering talent, enough R&D talent. How have you thought about trying to attract the best talent to your firm uh, over time? And, and, and maybe you can talk a little bit about culture as you, as, as you answer that question. Yeah. So the way we do things at Delupa is, um, you know, the reality was we were priced out of the market to look for talent from the big tech companies when we were starting out the business. Um, you know, at that time, the market obviously has changed a little since then, but at that time it was quite hot. So we asked ourselves, why do we need to hire from these traditional places? Mm -hmm. Why don't we just open up on that? We are willing to build systems um, and and build an offshore-based uh, human ver verification team um, and human analyst team, uh, why can't we do that for engineering? And that's what we did, right? So our engineers are global. Um, we hire from anywhere in the world, so long as they are at a level of um, skill, ability, work ethic, and and they jive with the culture of the firm, uh, we're, willing to, we're willing to take them in. And I think that has dramatically changed the engineering roadmap for us because Instead of thinking about where to hire these analysts from, or sorry, these engineers from, we are now thinking about how do we manage a global workforce of engineers that might have a totally different set of problems. And what you quickly realize is once you build in the management infrastructure to manage a workforce that is global, it scales incredibly well because you get benefits such as you can have uh, you can have round the clock support for your system because they are round the clock, right? You are able to obviously hire from firms that has a reputation for hiring the best software engineers, just not in the West Coast, right? Well, we understand that there are, you know, obviously the Twitters and the Googles and the Facebooks in the, in the US, um, but the engineers for a lot of, a lot of these tech companies and startups um, around the world are equally as good. Um, they're just less talked about by the media. And so that's where we go hunting. And because we're able to say, hey, look, at the end of the day, when we think about how do we build culture, we're not saying, oh, let's add in, you know, a co-brew tap in the office or something like that. Like, I honestly don't believe any of those things add culture. What adds culture is what you incentivize and what you disincentivize, right? I think ultimately what people care about is, do you treat people well? Do you treat them with respect? How are you incentivizing performance and how do you communicate and drive towards a singular goal, right? Delupa is not really a mission-driven company, right? We are a data company in service of financial services, but we are very, very focused. And I think what our folks like about our business is if you ask anyone in the business what we do at any point in time, the answer is always the same. If you ask people, how much do we care about quality? The answer is always the same. And that level of consistency and drive for exceptional excellence, 
attracts a particular type of engineer and talent. And those people tend to want to stay because working at a place where the really the only thing that people care about is quality is pretty nice, is refreshing. And is there anything you learned from your time on the buy side about incentives that, you know, maybe a lot of technology founders may not understand because you've looked at so many businesses in your career. Maybe you understand whatever you mean, you have different business models and different kind of like business mentors that you could look at to try to get, understand incentives, anything that you've employed from your time as, as an analyst to say, this is, this is how we should incentivize people. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So I think what the buy side has done a very good job at over time is a, they've thought about like incentives based on performance, right? Um, for the most part, people don't work in the buy side for a base salary. They're, they're looking for performance bonuses. Um, we incentivize on performance heavily, um, here. Uh, obviously we have to leverage stock options. Um, but that's, that's a big tool for us. Uh, so for example, you know, we have employees all over the world. Um, they all own shares in Zaluka. Um, and that's something that we're very proud of, right? Even um, someone who just graduated from college, uh, who just joined us, uh, will get some shares uh, in the firm. And we we incentivize good performance. We don't really care what schools you graduated from. If you perform, you get promoted, you get more shares. Um, and that's something I learned from the hedge fund business, right? Hedge funds do not care. When they incentivize you for performance, and if you make a lot of money for the firm, no one is going to care what college you graduated from. It's just not relevant. Um, the other thing I think the buy side did a very good job at, in, in instilling in me is a no bullshit culture, right? Uh, I think it's very easy to believe that it matters to have all sorts of perks and nice to haves in the firm. Um, people like to have big offices, people like to have, you know, open bars and all of that stuff. We have none of that stuff at Delupa. We mm. barely even have a real office, to be honest. Right. And but what we like to do is we like to be extremely transparent about everything. We're transparent about decision making. We're transparent about why we do anything we do. Um, we have a total open door policy. Anyone can ask anything. And people like that a lot because that's what I saw work on the buy side. A lot of hedge funds don't have the nicest pantries in the world, right? If you've seen a Google pantry and you've seen a hedge fund pantry, they're night and day apart. But what hedge funds are very good at is they're very good at communicating transparently what is going on because speed matters and decision-making is the only thing that you are relying on to basically make your paycheck. Um, people have understood that it's important to be transparent and that that's how we like to run a business here to be like ultra transparent about everything. I mean, it's, it's very clear to me that you think differently than a lot of people, uh, you know, who are start, starting technology companies. You talk about cash flow, you talk about incremental <laughs> margins. I mean, these are things that <laughs> people don't talk about for years, for years into their journey. But I guess, you know, I think there's a, there's a question, especially when your business data businesses are, can be very profitable with a huge amount of operating leverage. So when it's going well, it goes really well. How have you avoided not over hiring, over expanding just because, you know, the money's there and the TAM is big? How do you balance that, you know, that that constant tension for entrepreneurs of investing too little versus investing too fast and trying to find like the Goldilocks situation? I mean, we have made a lot of mistakes in the past, right? Don't get me wrong. We've made a ton of mistakes. We have overhired. We have underhired. We're probably making a lot of the very same mistakes right now as we speak. 
Um, and there is no knowing until, you know, months or years later, if you've made the mistake. But one of the things that I've, I've started to, to try to get better at is to ask myself a simple question. Is a mistake that I'm making right now a reversible mistake or irreversible mistake? Is it something that I can backtrack relatively quickly? How much damage does the mistake cost? So overhiring costs a lot more damage than underhiring. When you underhire, it's easy. It's, what the kind of problems that you create for yourself is you are creating a set of opportunity cost problems, right? You could have grown faster. You are not. Your product could have been better. It isn't. Um, you could have had better people. You don't. Um, but those are easier to basically fix, right? Let's go find these people. Let's go build out the product. Um, said differently, underhiring mistakes tend to be solvable with time. Overhiring mistakes tend not to be solvable with time. And so when we make decisions here, we like to be conservative. Again, you know, this just sort of being trained in the buy side, right? You tend to want to minimize the impact of your mistakes. Um, and back at when I was at, at the buy side, I was at 0.72. Uh, one of the key ways to measure success is to take everything and simplify it into an equation. And so if you look at an investment professional, um, it really doesn't matter how frequently you are investing or what type of investments you do. Ultimately, it comes down to your hit rate. How often are you right? Multiplied by your slugging ratio, which is a baseball term, which means when you are right, how right are you? And when you're wrong, how wrong are you? multiplied by your velocity, how often are you actually taking bets? And when you think about it from my perspective as a decision maker, it's the same thing, right? When I make decisions, how often am I right? When I'm right, what is the degree of, of um, influence of being right? And when I'm wrong, what is the degree of influence when I'm wrong? And how often am I making decisions? And you can optimize for each of these things as a as basically a decision maker. And sometimes you want to make less decisions. Sometimes you want to make more decisions. Right? And that's how I like to think about it. Uh, my my job fundamentally as a decision maker. And I think that's that's a good segue into the idea of capital allocation. I mean, this is these are businesses that scale well. They generate a lot of cash. And what's been interesting to me is some of some of your peers in the space have actually who are private have used acquisitions and to kind of bolster their offering. How have you thought about you know you you to give away stock, but how have you thought about capital allocation, M and A, you know whatever use of free cash flow in a way that you know some a struggling business that's just basically cash flow break even might not even be able to think about. So. When I think about capital allocation, I generally am not thinking about other businesses. The reason is um, Delupa works because we are focused. Uh, we are quality driven. And there are a lot of focus and quality driven businesses out there. But putting two of them together is the definition of losing focus. Mm. And I think that's dangerous, at least at the stage where we are. Right, We are at the stage where we have a product that works really well. The question is, can we scale this product? Um, in a go-to-market motion to continue to have it work really well. So capital allocation right now for us, at least, is best deployed in anything that develops a go-to-market motion, be it sales, uh, marketing, customer uh, service, customer support, customer success. Right? These are the places where capital is best allocated. Um, I think the at some point in the future, um, there is a case for acquisitions provided 
that they can match up with what we care about as a business, provided that the level of quality, that the belief in infrastructural build out is at the same level. Because it's easy to want to use acquisition dollars to grow revenue. Um, and it's very tempting. And I think, and I think the job of a good founder is to always say, um, always say no to opportunities that aren't the very, very best, right? Decisions should generally, in my mind, decisions should generally be made on things where, where you can say like, yeah, it will be absolutely stupid if I didn't say yes to this. That's when you say yes to something. In almost all the instances, you should probably be saying no. Got it. Got it. Interesting. And, you know, I think the whole, not to continue to lump you in with a bunch of other technology companies, but right, there's just been this world of spend as much as you can over hire, give away your product for free. Don't worry about cash flow. And all of a sudden, companies are being focused, being forced to get the cash flow break even. And of course, it's very difficult to do that because once you have the nice pantry and way too many people and too many offices, it's hard to turn off the spigot. I mean, when we first talked, you talked about this business being structured to generate cash. For someone who's not familiar with data businesses, or you know, you know, maybe would 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 love to be an investor in a business like this, you know, why is it so structurally um, well set up to be a cash generator? Yeah, so data businesses are quote unquote misunderstood uh, or, or little understood because there's not a lot of public data businesses out there, and that's partly because of how good of a business model it fundamentally is. What makes data businesses unique is you have insanely high operating leverage because once you've collected the data, um, the product is for the most part done, right? You are almost always a utility, which means you are a winner take all because data businesses are quantifiable and measurable in terms of its quality. So it's much harder to measure, let's say, two CRM platforms because for different use cases, you could say one CRM platform is better than the next. But you, you can't say a data business is better off than another if its data is worse. So you can quantify the quality. Buyers always buy the best data, right? Because you would never settle for second best knowing that there's a better one out there. Mm. Um, and data businesses do not require integration. And that's a big part of, I think, what makes beta, data businesses such big, such powerful companies. Um, for the most part, data companies and software companies share similar gross margins. Gross margins are incredibly high across both, right? But if you look at software companies, a big part of the cost that is really hidden and not really removable is the integration piece. You spend a lot of money integrating and supporting your customers because it is a product that is constantly being used by the customers and they have a nonstop back and forth with the company providing the business. Whereas for data businesses, the customers theoretically should know what to do with the data because you're buying a stream of numbers at the end of the day, right? So there isn't that much back and forth to go on and there really isn't that much integration to work on, right? Company buyers of data know what they're doing with the data. They have their own platforms, their tools set up. They're probably very savvy with using the data. They don't need you to build tools to develop, to, de to deploy the data to them. And that's what makes it relatively unique. Um, and of course, because you have high operating leverage, high gross margins, and very little um, cost between gross and net margins, you end up with a high free cash flow generating business. Um, and so long as you con continue to maintain the quality of data you have, um, customers have a tendency to want to stay with you. And you you found yourself in a good position given 
you know, any of the headlines you realize, you know, you've heard about Silicon Valley Bank failing and venture capital, you know, who, who knows what the funding environment is going to be like. So it's it's very beneficial to be in a position where you can, can self-fund. But how, I mean, is that, I mean, just give people some context. Have you funded this business internally from the beginning? Have you taken outside capital? Just giving us a sense of like how you've done that traditionally and any reasons why you would, you know, it, why that model would change over time and you would require like a large amount of outside capital in your mind. Yeah. So, so we have taken outside capital. Um, we are venture backed. Uh, in fact, our series A was led by Credit Suisse Next Ventures. Um, it's a fund under Credit Suisse, uh, and Nexus Venture Partners, which is a uh, Menlo Park based, um, uh, VC fund. Um, the thing about data businesses is it is capital efficient to operate, but not capital efficient to start, mm. right? Um, software companies, you could start with three engineers in a garage and build an MVP. You cannot do that for a data business. You have to first build the database. Yeah. And the database is not cheap to assemble. Without a critical mass of high quality data, you don't have a product. So that's what makes data businesses unique. You have a CapEx problem that you have to solve. Therefore, we had to prove that we have the ability to build the database, raise the money, build the database, and go to market. But once you hit the growth stage for data businesses, that's where the economics are in your favor, right? Operating leverage tends to involve a high upfront fixed cost uh, before you can amortize the fixed cost over time. Um, so that's what we've done. When we think about future rounds of capital, I mean, I don't think we think about it in a revolutionary way, but a way we think about it is for every, every dollar of capital we are raising, what is the ROI on that dollar? If the ROI on the dollar is not so dramatically higher than if we would have to do it ourselves using free cash flow, then we just simply shouldn't be raising the money. Because it's not about, hey, if I raise the money, it will be able to help me grow faster. Yeah. It's if I raise the money, it will help me grow so much faster that it justifies the cost of the money that I'm raising. And there is a spread to the fact that I might be wrong because raising money is an irreversible decision. Right. So you need to be so absolutely sure that it will add to the level of growth that you simply will not be able to achieve um, with the cost of capital you have. Right. That's where you raise money. And, you know, this this is a company that uses the word you use the word perfect and 100 percent. Right. It's hard to get better than that. But I do love the idea of continuous improvement. And and I'd love to hear a little bit about how you know, how adaptable you, 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 how you try to make this company adaptable, how you've made this company open, open to customer feedback. And then maybe, you know, and if you have any anecdotes about how customer feedback has made this company better over time, because you've got, you know, you've got these, you got, you've set almost impossible hurdles of perfection and hundred percent. So we, every single thing we do build, uh, we built using customer, um, customer feedback, actually. So we have an internal measure where what we do is we will gather customer feedback on, a, on actually a daily basis. And we ask ourselves a couple of questions. If there is feedback that results in a deal going from success to fail, so either renewal or new deal expansion or what, what have you, um, that gets the single highest weight. That's something we immediately look into. The second tier is a feedback that is resonated across multiple customers. Um, and the third tier are nice to have that someone says, hey, if you were to do this, that would be awesome. Um, because ultimately what we care about is we want to serve our customers, but we are also running a business. 
Uh, we need to make sure that the decisions that we're making from building product, which is a cost, it's an expense, is measured in an ROI that will translate into future revenue. And the best way to figure that out is to say, if I don't have this product, I'm going to lose a deal. Mm. And if I can say that this deal that I'm about to lose is one of a thousand, then we should absolutely go build that product. Right? So that's our litmus test. It's And then the second tier is, how do we better deliver product to our customers with the bet the better product will retain them for a longer period of time? And that's where we take the feedback of multiple customers at the same time. And so all the product that we do develop are developed along the three pillars of excellence that we care about, right? Quality, accuracy, and completeness. So it comes down to, are we able to be faster for our customers? Are we able to deliver product data at a higher quality? Are we able to capture data that historically we couldn't capture, right? A year ago, we couldn't capture data from pie charts and, and you know, line graphs. Um, and a lot of investor presentation had KPIs buried within those charts. Today we can, and that's important to a lot of our customers. And that was feedback developed, uh, deployed by a lot of customers saying, Hey, dude, I have all these segmental breakdown in bar charts. Can you please collect that data? Mm-hmm. Right, so we develop tools and techniques to do that. Got it. Interesting. Very interesting. And, you know, getting back to the business, certain businesses, especially startups, are, are built to be sold and they're structured with an exit in mind. How have you thought about the concept of an, of an exit? And do you think that decision-making is different within a company that is created to stand on its own indefinitely versus one that's kind of built to being sold? Yeah, absolutely. A startup that is built to be sold has no driver, has no drive for free cash flow, ultimately. Yeah. Um, when a founder wants to sell his startup, what he will almost always do is try to juice revenue growth as much as possible. Because no matter what you do to a business, driving revenue growth higher will have more impact in making the business look more attractive almost all of the time, right? Um, but that's not what our focus is at the loop. Sure, we grow revenue, you know, you know, triple digits, and we are we're successful in that regard, but that is not the focus. The focus is to grow revenue organically and to grow it in a way that's sustainable and intelligent, right? So a lot of startups are built to be sold. Obviously, every company, with the exception of a few large public ones, are viable, right? Like given the right price, every company should be sold. Uh, But Delupa is not built to be sold, right? Delupa is built to generate high incremental margins. And I think that's that's a little bit unique. I think it's just a, a legacy of you know how I was trained as an analyst to understand that a high quality business is not a business where you have to sell it for people to make to to you know make a livelihood. That's just not a good outcome. Yeah, high incremental margin businesses get more valuable over time, right? And then all kinds of good things can happen if you just have a business that's getting more valuable. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So speaking, and you don't have a clock. There is no, there is no timer on an expiration of the business. Yep. Right. It's not a hot potato. Yeah. And so I, I always love uh, the idea of like, what does success mean to you or to this firm? So if you know, you're looking back five years from now and you've reached certain milestones and you said, this is success for us. What does, you know, success over the next five years look like to you? Yeah. I mean, we obviously have our internal, um, 
you know, guide, quote unquote, guidance for revenue growth, uh, incremental margins, and so on. Uh, so there is a quantifiable wave internally, well, which I'm going to share right now um, on what success looks like for us, uh, which is, you know, we have what we believe are reasonable assumptions um, that we should grow at. And if we can achieve more than that, that will be highly successful. But if you were to extract all of that out, I think the reality is what I want to be able to do is I want to be able to look back, you know, in a decade, two decades, and basically say, I've built a product that truly is the best in the world at what it does. It's truly differentiated. It's difficult to replicate. And I have added value. But I think that is the true definition of success, which is I built something um, with my team of guys that is able to deliver something that no one else was able to do. And it will take a long time before someone else can figure out how to replicate. That's what I'll look back, um, look back at and feel proud of. And in terms of your own personal goals and leadership, what what would you say, where would you like to become as a leader over the next few years that, you know, you, you've, we all make stumble and make mistakes in management roles. So where, where have you made some mistakes and where do you see yourself, you know, as a goal getting better over the next five years? Yeah. I mean, we've made so many mistakes. I can't count. Um, but I think the single largest mistakes, a set of mistakes that we've made tends to be a lack of focus. Right. I think today we are extremely focused, but we can always be more focused. Um, because when I look at some of the best, most respected companies in the world of quality, they have a tendency to have a level of focus that is difficult for other people to understand. Mm. One good example is um, if you look at the world of cars, right? Ferrari, for the most part, most people agree to make some pretty excellent cars. Um, Ferrari has a market cap today of like 50 plus billion, I, I imagine. Uh, I think that's about the same market cap as Honda. Honda makes, I think, close to 2 million cars a year. Uh, so that's like what a car every 20 seconds or so. Um, Ferrari makes, I think, like less than 20,000 cars a year. So if you think about the order of magnitude difference, it's tremendous. I can't fathom how many models of Hondas there are, but I think... But I think there's only like what like five models of Ferrari, so realistically, maybe maybe not even. Um, and that's the kind of business that I want to aspire towards, which is a level of focus where you say, I'm going to dedicate all of our resources to building the absolute best, but in in short supply. And that's okay, right? You don't have to become Honda to be successful. As much as I think they build great cars. But I think most people will argue that it takes a lot more know-how to create a car at the level that Ferrari does um, than a car at the level that Honda does. And that focus, what you're saying, and what I'm hearing is that focus builds the brand, right? Exactly. And that's, that's that's why they can charge $300,000 for a car because they've got the brand. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. Ferrari is insanely focused about the performance of their cars. That's all, that's the only thing they care about realistically, right? Thomas, this has been an incredible conversation. We've covered a lot of topics. Uh, we're going to close with the question we always ask. So what do you think is the most underappreciated aspect of this company? Uh, it's the fact that it's a data company. I think there are not a lot of public data companies. People don't think about it. Um, but you know, when I started Delupa, I asked myself a simple question, which is, what is the single best business model in the world um, that is buildable, right? Like that that you can realistically create. And I landed on the decision that it is a data business.
Um, so I think a lot of people don't fully appreciate how powerful data companies are. It's very easy to say, hey, your assets are free to gather. Anybody mm -hmm. else can do it. Therefore, it's not a good business. And, you know, my challenge to that is, yeah, but, you know, Bloomberg is a huge and highly powerful business. Anyone who uses it will tell you it's one of the best businesses in the world. How did that happen? Right. Same for almost all the other public data businesses out there. Um, most of their data, if not all of their data, is publicly available. Um, but yet it becomes some of the most powerful, um, highest quality business models there are. Well, Thomas, we've learned a lot about your business. We've learned a lot about how you think about business models and cash flow and margins. And um, I think uh, you speak very differently from, I think, the st someone stereotypically in your role. So uh, this has been a great conversation, learned a lot, and we wish you luck. Um, we're gonna, I'm certainly going to be uh, carefully following your success over the next over the next decade. Thanks so much for being on Compounders. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-streetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.